Well, great gospel truth, amen? I know I say it uh, often, it seems more and more these days, but this is why we gather on Sunday morning, is to celebrate the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. And uh, it's all about the gospel, and that's why we're here. None of us would be here without it, and uh, we need to be reminded of it every day. And uh, Sunday is just the opportunity we get to do it together with other people whose lives have been transformed by the gospel. Well, today is the first Sunday of Advent, and depending on your church background and family tradition, you may or may not be familiar with Advent. My only exposure to the concept of Advent growing up was getting an Advent calendar at the beginning of December that we used to count down the days until Christmas. The calendar had 24 little windows, and we would open up one each day, and there was a piece of chocolate inside. My parents may have intended for the calendar to teach my sister and me to anticipate the coming of Christ, but honestly, all I remember is anticipating the daily chocolate treats. I must confess. Well, Advent is the season of the year when Christians focus on and prepare for Christ's arrival on Christmas Day. And it's hard to pinpoint exactly when the tradition of Advent began in church history, but for centuries now, churches have set aside the four Sundays leading up to Christmas in anticipation of the coming of Christ. If you come from a Roman Catholic background, you're very familiar with this, and Perhaps maybe you've come from another liturgical denomination like the Lutherans or the Methodists or the Anglicans or the Episcopalians. Uh, they observe this season of Advent with various traditions and rituals, and they have wreaths and candles and colors and ceremonies and fastings and prayers and readings. Most non-denominal churches like, like ours typically don't observe Advent in the same way because of its associations with those traditions and rituals that are not mentioned anywhere in the scriptures. There's no exhortation in the Bible commanding us to set aside the four Sundays or the four weeks prior to Christmas as a season of waiting and hoping and yearning and fasting. Christians are not required to observe Advent and those who do aren't better Christians or more acceptable to God because they celebrate Advent or observe Advent. But having said that, celebrating Advent can serve as a helpful reminder of what this season is all about, especially in our culture that has turned the days leading up to Christmas into a hectic rush of shopping and decorating and wrapping gifts and baking and going to parties, all of which tend to take our focus off of Christ. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival or appearing or coming. And as Christians, we often talk about the first and second Advent of Christ. That is his first coming and his second coming. And so Advent is a time for Christians to both celebrate Christ's first coming and to anticipate Christ's second coming. If you're familiar with church tradition, those of you that maybe, again, grew up in churches, um, like I mentioned earlier, that observed uh, Advent, 
you know that the first week of Advent focuses on hope, the word hope, which is based on all the Old Testament promises about Christ's coming. And the first candle that is lit in the Advent wreath is called the prophet's candle or the prophecy candle because of how the prophets of old predicted and longed for the arrival of the Messiah. You may remember what we've just got finished studying in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. It says, out of this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to me come to you, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to come, or excuse me, the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. That was the last section of of 1 Peter that we studied. And the very next verse, which we're going to look at, Lord willing, next week, says this, therefore, in light of this, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, just as the prophets fixed their hope on Christ's first coming, We as Christians are to fix our hope on his second coming. And even as every faithful Jew longed for their Messiah to come, we as Christians are to long for our Savior to come again. So as we've been learning, hope is the theme of the book of 1 Peter. But it's also the theme of the book of Malachi, which I want you to turn to with me this morning And again, the Sunday after Thanksgiving is always an odd Sunday to me because I'm not sure how many people will be here. And and so because that the next section in our study in 1 Peter is so epic, the be holy as God is holy section, I didn't want to preach it uh, or study through it when we didn't have everyone here potentially. And so we're going to put that off till next Sunday. But I thought it would be good for us to consider this whole idea of Advent and really how it ties perfectly, dovetails really nicely with what we're learning in 1 Peter. Now, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the book of Malachi. In fact, some of you may be more familiar with the classic work by the late Christian philosopher and apologist Francis Schaeffer who wrote a book entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. Anybody ever heard of that title? Francis Schaeffer, He is There and He is Not Silent. And then this book is based on the late night conversations at Labry Fellowship in the Swiss Alps where they lived. He and his wife lived and they would welcome travelers, typically young people who were backpacking through the Swiss Alps. And he would, they would open up their home and they would invite them in to share the gospel with them. And so this book discusses fundamental questions about God and who he is and why he matters. And I mention this book not because of its brilliant content, but simply because of its brilliant title. He is there and he is not silent, which clearly implies one of the most important foundational truths about 
God, namely that God speaks. It is the nature of God to speak, which is confirmed throughout the pages of Scripture, which is in itself the product of God's ongoing communication and revelation to his creatures. Listen to the first chapter, excuse me, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Chapter 3, verse 9. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? This was after they ate of the forbidden fruit and God came to the garden looking for them. He said, where are you? Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And then in chapter 6, verse 13 it says, then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. So not only did God speak to Adam and to Eve and to Noah, but also to Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and countless other individuals in the Old Testament. He also spoke collectively and consistently to his chosen people, the nation of Israel. This is how he introduced the Ten Commandments. At Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, Then God spoke all these words, saying... So God spoke to them through Moses, through Joshua, through Samuel, and others. But the main way he spoke to the nation as a whole was through the group of men known as prophets... There was five major prophets, which are what? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, he wrote that, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then you've got the minor prophets, 12 of them. But God's voice was heard the loudest and the clearest to the ultimate prophet, his own son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. Jesus was referred to as the word. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so he spoke as God while he was here on this earth. And after he returned to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to continue to speak. John 16, 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. And we know it was through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the apostles and prophets wrote the scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, but now, excuse me, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy, prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So all that to say, the testimony of Scripture is that God has spoken, and he continues to speak through the pages of his inspired word. 
But there was one exception to the fact that God is there and he's not silent. There was a time in history when God was silent. He didn't speak a word for 400 years. You may be familiar with the term the 400 silent years. Bible scholars refer to this as the intertestamental period, the, the time span between the Old and the New Testament. It's, it's the white space there at the end of Malachi, uh, in between Malachi and, and Matthew. Four decades passed between the last word God spoke to the prophet Malachi and to the first word he spoke through the angel Gabriel to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. The question we should ask ourselves is then, why did God stop speaking for such a, a long period of time, 400 years? Let me suggest a possible answer to that question. After speaking through the prophets for 400 years to no avail, the people of Israel failed to heed his words and repent of their sin and return to him, so he just stopped talking to them. He gave them the silent treatment, if you will. Wasn't it Jesus that told us not to cast our pearls before swine? And at some point when people aren't listening, we shake the dust off our sandals and move on? There's nothing more sad or scary than not to hear from God. And what's interesting and ironic about the book of Malachi is that of the 55 verses in this prophecy, 47 of them were spoken directly by God, which is a higher proportion than any other book of the Bible. And so it's as if God was making his final appeal to this wayward people through Malachi, and he used more words than he ever had before or ever would again in a last-ditch effort to get their attention and get them to turn back to him. Malachi means messenger, and he was the last of the Old Testament prophets until John the Baptist. And the book of Malachi really serves as a bridge between the Old and New Testaments. And the main point of this prophecy is that God was going to send another Malachi or another messenger, namely John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for the ultimate messenger, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. We know this is a reference to John the Baptist initially, and then ultimately to Christ, when Christ was providing tribute to John, wanting to honor John the Baptist. This is what he said in Matthew 11, verse 10. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. In other words, Jesus quoted Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 to describe John the Baptist. So let's consider this 
obscure prophet Malachi for a moment. He was one of three what's called post-exilic prophets who ministered to the exiles who had returned to Judah to rebuild the temple and the walls. Haggai and Zechariah, who precede Malachi, uh, prophesied during the rebuilding of the temple. And Malachi prophesied about 100 years later, right after the rebuilding of the walls. And if you know anything about the rebuilding of the walls, there's one book of the Bible that should come to your mind. And what is it? Nehemiah, which is the best place to go to understand the historical background of the book of Malachi. So turn back to Nehemiah for a second. Keep your finger in Malachi. Turn to Nehemiah. Did I say that? Turn to Nehemiah. And really, chapters 8 through 13, the second half of the book, are where we find the historical background of the book of Malachi. And we know from the first half of the book of Nehemiah that under the stellar spiritual and organizational leadership of Nehemiah, the people completely rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem in an amazing 52 days. And after the reconstruction of the walls, Nehemiah and Ezra led the people in a reconsecration of their hearts. Something good that we need to understand, the book of Nehemiah isn't just about rebuilding walls, it's about reconsecrating hearts. And if you remember in Nehemiah chapter 8, in response to Ezra's famous exposition of the book of the law of Moses, remember they said, bring the book, the people wept and they confessed their sin to God and vowed that they would keep his commands from that moment on. And they made an agreement with God to live according to his law, specifically to refrain from intermarrying with foreign nations, to keep the Sabbath, and to faithfully tithe. And they actually put this agreement in writing. Notice Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes, and that we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a, or a holy day, and we will forego the crops the seventh year, and the exaction of every debt. And then he goes on in verse 32, really all the way to verse 39, talking about their obligation to tithe. Verse 32, we also place ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Verse 34, likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests the Levites and the people, so they might bring it to the house of our God, according to our fathers, households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as is written in the law. He talks about bringing the first fruits of our ground, the first fruits of our fruit in verse 35. Verse 36, bringing the firstborn of our sons and our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks. So they're dedicating themselves here, committing themselves to not let their daughters intermarry, 
to not do any business on the Sabbath and to make sure they're faithful to give according to the Old Testament law. And afterwards, they had a big celebration to commemorate this, their renewed commitment to God. Chapter 12, verse 43. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. So here we find the nation of Israel. The, the, the temple and the walls are now rebuilt The temple rituals had been restored, and the people had rededicated themselves. Everything appeared ready for God to send who? The Messiah. And to restore Israel to her former glory as preeminent among the nations, just like he had been promising through all the prophets. In fact, Zechariah, who comes before or had been prophesying during those days, had prophesied about this splendid restored temple and all the nations of the earth flooding to it, streaming to it, this powerful new kingdom. And on the throne was it a mighty son of David. And so there was this great anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. Well, at that time, Nehemiah went back to Persia for about seven years or so, and when he returned, he was appalled by the corruption and compromise that had developed while he was away. Look at chapter 13, starting in verse 6. He says, but during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. In other words, he made room for this enemy of God in the temple. Verse 10, I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. So that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? So they were not giving their tithes, as they had committed to. But notice verse 15, in those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they, on the day they sold food. So he reprimanded them because they had stopped maintaining the Sabbath, honoring the Sabbath like they had promised they would. And then look at verse 33. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. Verse 25, so I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take of their daughters for your sons or yourselves. So tragically, they had learned very little from their time in exile and captivity, and they lapsed back into the same exact sins they had promised God they would never commit again.
Which, if you're honest, this is why the nation of Israel is such an example of us in many ways. How many times have we promised God, I will never do that again? I promise you, God, I'll never do that again. You forgive me, I'll never do that again. And what do we do? We do it again. And so when you read through Malachi, and go ahead and head back to Malachi now, now that we've kind of got the historical background, you can't help but notice that the sins Nehemiah returned to find were the very sins that God had called Malachi to confront while Nehemiah was away. So during, during that time when Nehemiah was away, Malachi was there ministering in Jerusalem prophesying against these sins. And one of the most disturbing things about the book of Malachi is how arrogant and cynical and skeptical the people had become towards God. And you just pick this up through, as we're going to see in just a moment, what the prophet said to them. You say, well, how did that happen? How, how did they end up that way? How did they become so cynical? How did they become so skeptical? How did they become so arrogant? Well, again, all the, all the prophecies during the previous generation about the exciting things to come had raised the people's expectations that everything was about to change for the better. But a hundred years had passed since the remnant returned and the people were discouraged that nothing had been promised by the prophets had happened yet. Let me read for you, I think, a great description from a helpful little resource that I've got in my library, How to Read the Bible Through the Jesus Lens by Michael Williams. He says this, the expected glorious manifestation of God in their midst that all the other nations would not fail to notice was not taking place. They continue to scrape by as a small province on the margins of the world's powers and dependent on their good graces. It began to look as if things were never going to get any better. The people began to suspect that God had really given up on them. They began to believe that God no longer loved them. He wasn't going to exalt them and he wasn't going to judge their enemies as he had promised. And if God wasn't going to remember them, well, then what point was there in honoring him? Routine insincerity and compromise began to infect their worship. Their growing belief in God's unfaithfulness to them led to unfaithfulness toward him and toward one another. They needed to be reminded of some important truths and God charged his prophet Malachi to do just that. So by the time Malachi came along, the temple was run down again. It was being neglected because of a lack of funds. The priests were corrupt. The people were getting divorced and intermarrying with foreigners. The economy was depressed. The crops were being devoured by parasites, all of which caused the Jews to be disillusioned and doubtful, like as Chuck Swindoll said so well, passengers at a train station waiting for a train that never came. They'd given up hope of the Messiah and gone back to their old way of life thinking it didn't pay to honor God. It appeared to them that God didn't really love them after all. 
And so they were not only disenchanted with God, they also were calloused and embittered toward God. And so Malachi's mission was not only to expose the sin in their hearts, but also to light a flame of hope in their hearts by reminding them that God hadn't forgotten them and would keep his promises. And if you were to outline Malachi very simply, you could just break it up into three sections. There's the message of love in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. There's the message of rebuke, the rest of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3, verse 15. And then finally, the book ends with a message of hope, which is where we're headed. So hang in there till we get to the end. First of all, we see the message of love. And again, all the people could see was their hardship and all of God's unfulfilled promises towards them. And so what did he do? God reaffirmed his love for them by reminding them of how he had selected them and how he had preserved Israel as his chosen people. Notice verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord God, but you say, how have you loved us? Notice they had lost sight of the love of God for them. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. So again, rather than appreciating their privileged position as God's chosen people, the ones that he had set his love on, his affection on, they grumbled and they complained against God about the difficulties their own sins had caused. And they blew off the covenant that they had made with God. And so God was wanting to remind them of how much he loved them. But at the same time, because he loved them, he needed to rebuke them. And so starting in verse 6, he first rebukes the unfaithful priests. And then he goes on to rebuke the unfaithful people. And we'll just read some portions of this for the sake of time. The unfaithful priests, notice how they dishonored the Lord, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In what you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor? That he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part, will he, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. 
I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. And so the priests weren't doing their job. They were being unfaithful. They were offering all sorts of unacceptable offerings to the Lord. And God says, you know, it it would have been good. Where's just one of you that would get it and just go slam the door to the temple and not let this, this false worship continue? This useless worship. And then he goes on to talk about the discipline that would come on the priests in chapter 2, verse 1. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring. I will spread refuse on your faces and refuse of your feasts and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know I have sent this commandment to you that my covenant may continue with Levi. Verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people just as you are not keeping my ways but are showing partiality in the instruction. So he rebukes the unfaithful priests but then he goes on to rebuke the people. Starting in verse 10 of chapter 2, do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? And this is the classic section in Malachi where he talks about husbands who were dealing treacherously with their wives. Verse 13, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. He goes on to talk about how he was going to purify the people. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. We already read that, talking about John the Baptist. Verse 3, he will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former days. Verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. 
What a beautiful promise there. He was acknowledging that, that they were far, far away from him, but all they needed to do is return. And if they would return to him, he would return to them. They would be reconciled. He says, well, how shall we return? And again, another familiar portion of the book of Malachi. If you don't know much about Malachi, I'm sure you've heard this verse. Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. In other words, stop giving me the leftovers. Put me to the test. See if I won't bless you if you give like I commanded you to give generously and joyfully and sacrificially. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, verse 11, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground. Nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, God's promising, hey, I will tell all the pestilence and the parasites that have been destroying your crops, they'll go away. Again, every time God judged the people of Israel, it typically had to do with their agriculture. That was their livelihood. And so he said, I'll restore your land. It will be the most delightful land in the world. But notice verse 13. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You've said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? In other words, what use, it is, to, what use is it to serve the Lord? What, what use is it to honor the Lord? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they are also test God and escape. In other words, they were praising those who were making these claims that it didn't pay to, to follow God, to worship God, to serve God, to honor God. Instead, let's do wickedness, let's do evil. And so there was the really heart of the book there, the message of rebuke to these people that had drifted away from the Lord yet again. But as every Old Testament prophecy goes, there may be some strong words of rebuke given somewhere in the pages of that prophecy, but it always ended with a ray of hope. And so we see, starting in chapter 3, verse 16, this message of hope. Notice it says there, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. 
They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And I think we find here the, the, the underlying cause for Israel's sin was that they had lost their fear and reverence of the Lord. This is a, really a sub-theme here in, in Malachi. Notice chapter 1, verse 6. As a son honors his father and a servant his master, then if I'm a father, where is my honor? In other words, they didn't revere the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 5, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name, speaking of Levi. Chapter 3, verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and the wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me. And then verse, chapter 4, verse 2, but for you who fear my name. So we know this from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Remember that phrase that Paul borrowed from the Old Testament? And because they had no fear of God, they dishonored God and truly believed that they deserved better from God. And God simply is saying here that he would give those who, who didn't fear him and didn't honor him what they deserved. They were going to get judgment. But he would spare and he would bless those who fear him and honor him. And justice would come in the person of Jesus Christ, who John the Baptist would be the one to prepare the way for Christ. Notice, again, chapter 4, verse 1, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Talking about judgment, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinance which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. In other words, as a result of, of, of people's repentance, God's judgment will be averted, and the curse of sin will be reversed, and the earth will be restored to its original sinless state. There's a lot there, right, that's read into those verses. And again, is this just talking about Christ's first coming or his second coming? Yes. <laughs> it's always yes in the Old Testament. It was talking about his first advent, but also his second advent. 
And I think that's why Malachi serves as such a, a fitting conclusion to the Old Testament. Why? Because it, it underscores the sinfulness of man and anticipates God's solution in the coming of the sinless Messiah who was revealed in the New Testament. And again, we have this white space after chapter 4, verse 6, before we get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And the 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament was deafening. And yet that deafening 400 years of silence was broken by the angel Gabriel when he announced to an old priest named Zacharias that he would father a son who would fulfill the promise of Malachi. Luke chapter 1, verse 13 Luke is the only one who records this account of Gabriel going uh, to Zacharias. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will, bring no wine, he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go, excuse me, as a forerunner. Before him, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Back to Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. What's the last word of the book of Malachi? Malachi. curse. How ironic that the Old Testament ends with the word curse. Which, by the way, whenever the Jews today read Malachi, they repeat verse 5 after they read verse 6 because they don't like their Old Testament scriptures ending with the word curse. But I think it's providential that curse is the last word that God chose to speak and to have echo in the ears of his people for 400 years. Why? So they would anticipate the coming of the one who would become a curse for them. And in doing so, would redeem them and us from the curse of sin and death. Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Lots of Christmas carols or Advent hymns, if you prefer, 
come to mind. But I think the classic Carol Joy to the World by Isaac Watts perfectly expresses the heart of every Christian during the season of Advent as we look forward to Christmas Day, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. This should be our heart cry. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as, far as, far as the curse is found. We know this to be true, that there's not a place on planet earth that's not affected by sin, nor, there is, a, nor there, is there a person on planet earth that's not infected with sin. The curse is found everywhere. And what Watts was expressing was that joyous truth of the gospel, that Jesus humbly and mercifully came from heaven to this sin-cursed earth to deliver us from the pain and the sorrow and the misery that we brought upon ourselves as a result of not honoring God with our lives. The message of Malachi, honor God. Or what happens if you don't honor God? And so consequently, we as Christians can live with joy in a fallen, broken world. Why? Because we're looking forward to a better time and to a better place when Jesus returns and sin's curse will finally be lifted and paradise will be restored. The curse will be gone completely. There's a lot at stake in this season that we call Christmas, isn't it? I mentioned Francis Schaeffer at the beginning, who wrote He is There and He's Not Silent. He's probably best known, however, for his book and film series entitled How Then Should We Live? How Then Should We Live? In other words, in light of these things, if, if God is there and He's not silent, how should we live? As a result, well, one way to answer that question in light of the first Sunday of Advent, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Perhaps there's a handful of you who have some cattle. You know what that verse is talking about. You've seen it with your own eyes. If you're not a rancher, if you don't, and if you never own any cattle, never had any calves, go on YouTube and just type in calves in springtime. And it's fun to watch that these 
calves who were confined to their stalls during the winter months are turned loose into the field in the springtime, and they're kicking up their heels, and they're jumping around and skipping about and are leaping for joy. And that's how God said that we should be. That's how we should live our lives, that we would go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. As those who have been redeemed from the curse of sin, we should live with joy in our hearts and a skip in our step as we anticipate our ultimate redemption when Christ returns. So on this first Sunday of Advent, I thought it would be good to remind us all that we should skip our way to December 25th as we anticipate all that that day holds for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how even obscure passages that we don't often read or or study have so much encouragement and hope and truth for us. And Lord, we acknowledge that we're heading into the month of December here and we've lived long enough to know that it's going to be hectic and everything around us is going to be seeking to distract us from not just what matters most, but the one who matters most. And so I pray that you would give us a just a holy focus these next four weeks while we'll have to go shop, while we'll have to wrap presents, while we'll be decorating and going to different Christmas parties. We can do all these things without letting them rob us of joy, overwhelm us, stress us out. But Lord, that you would help us to remain joyful and uh, that we would, you would help us to maintain a skip in our step as we go forward in anticipation of not just commemorating Christ's first coming, but also anticipating and expecting his second coming. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.